I have tried so many skin and hair care products. I can't even tell you. It, it's insane. I mean, at one point, the closet in my bathroom was full with every imaginable product. And then I found what works, and that is OneEarthBodyCare.com. I am in love with their shampoo and conditioner bars. Completely changed the game for my daughter, who had a hard time finding a good shampoo and conditioner for her hair. Their face and body is amazing. I love their day and night oil, all natural ingredients, of course, and all of this, essential oils, really great stuff. And of course, the deodorant has changed my life because I am no longer smelly. So go check them out now at oneearthbodycare.com. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog, Benji, Yum Woof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. If you listen to the show, actually both my shows, both Health Power and Dog Eared, you know I love memoirs. And I've done a lot of memoirs about people with mental health issues and trauma from sexual abuse and neglect and other types of emotional abuse. But I haven't spoken to somebody who had a physical trauma and I was blown away. That's not a good, it's not a good choice of words. <laughs> you won't be the first person who's... <laughs> okay. I was blown away. And you'll be like, well, at least you insensitive jerk uh, by Rebecca Fogg's book, Beautiful Trauma and Explosion, see, it's blown away, An Obsession and a New Lease on Life bio here. Rebecca, welcome to Health Power. I am so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Right in the book, quote, I realize that the toilet has exploded, propelling a sharp hunk of porcelain through the inside of my right wrist, partially severing my dominant hand. This is bad, really bad, and it's happening to me. Were you having like a dissociative experience? Were you like above your body? Because the amount of blood and the, tra the trauma and the shock, I, I can't, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I think you could describe it as dissociative. Uh, it's tricky to label those moments anyway, because of course, we're accessing them through memory. And, you know, yeah. memory is mediated by what's going on in the moment. But as I remember that moment, it's pretty classic, you know, the super slow-mo, the movie slows down, this thing is happening. And what I really, really was impressed by in retrospect was just how completely foreign everything seemed. It was just all incomprehensible. And the fact that this could happen 
And you could be standing there in a puddle of blood and not know that you were even injured until you look down, until you look over and see it. And then the fact that I could look inside my body, you know, at my wrist and not know I was looking inside my body and then not know it was mine. So it felt like a very slow process for me to become aware this is, you know, this is bad. It's really bad. Oh, and it's happening to me. And that must have happened in nanoseconds, but it is really fascinating to remember or I suppose piece together a lived experience of something like that. Well, you go on to write, and this really struck me, still, my brain insists on one further second of reflection to mark an irreversible transition. The life I've been living is over. The next one, however long it lasts, begins now. It's Mm -hmm. incredible during all of that, that you had that sense Mm -hmm. of my whole life has changed. Mm -hmm. That was, it's almost like, you know, before Mm -hmm. accident, accident, right? Absolutely. And I, I'm struck by almost the poeticism of it, you know, and, (laughs) you know, amazed that my, you know, my non-conscious could shove that into my consciousness at that moment. But it really was a very clear sense of, here I am thinking, I could die, I'm going to have to do something. And then my brain comes right back with, you've already died. That one life, that life you were living, that is over. That life is over. Yeah. Now, it's a, new, it's a whole new thing. And it might last 10 minutes, or it might last 50 years. And that was a very clear memory. And in fact, I told one of my close friends afterward, and she, you'll have noticed her painting, um, which is reproduced in the beginning of the book. And that book is called Becca's Next Life Begins Now. Oh, wow. Well, you know, I also love the way you took this as an opportunity to really learn about hands and anatomy and science. And I'm a huge science nerd. I took anatomy and physiology and kinesiology, and I loved it. Lucky you. And I love to read about this. And you you were able to take, I'm assuming, very complicated Mm -hmm. medical jargon, Mm -hmm. and you put it into a way that we could understand. How was that process? That was really fun. And I have to say that was a huge motivation for me to write the book because, you know, spending a lot of time alone at your desk, um, thinking about yourself and writing about yourself, it's not how I would generally choose to spend my time. Um, (laughs) But when you think about trying to explain something you've gone through because, because it's hard and it's a great challenge and because it might help someone, that's okay. The big incentive for me was just learning more about this remarkable you know, tool and machine that we have at our disposal. And so the process of writing about it was really fun and challenging because I had to study all of that. And very often I would start, you know, think of a funnel. I would start big, you know, of course it was the Google search. Um, And, you know, just trying to get a sense of, well, what is the realm that I'm trying to learn? And then um, often it would be finding uh, a, a really talented physician or scientist writer who had written something popular about it. So um, read a lot of Joseph Ledoux, read a lot of Atul Gawande, read a lot of, um, you know, Gavin Francis. And um, I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And, you know, getting the general concepts from, you know, those beautiful writers and those talented uh, physicians and scientists and figuring out then, so 
they've given me more of the landscape of the um the the realm and then I had to tie it back to my own experience and say okay well what part of that is relevant to my own experience and then I'm further narrowing the funnel and saying what part of it is so is the most interesting like what do I think is just super super cool and then I would study 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 try to understand that at the deepest level I could and then figure out what you know how do I want to articulate it and then also well it has to be different. You know, there are many experts. I'm not an expert. There are experts out there. Why should anyone le- read my account of it? I'm going to make sure it's correct. I'm going to make sure it's bulletproof. But why should they read my interpretation? And that was the really fun part because nobody can tell your story better than you. And, you know, we are the owners of our bodies that these experts study and write about. And so I wanted to give that science a spin that was very, very personal. And that's what was fun. So I, I often... You know, I would take a mechanism that I was trying to explain and I would try to root it um, into something part of my life. So when I explain um, a bit about neuroplasticity toward the end, you know, which is essentially how I was able to learn to use my hand again after it healed, I likened that process of learning to use my hand again with the process of, you know, learning an instrument. So the science was, you know, it was learning myself. I also interviewed many experts who were incredibly generous in giving me their time in reading the manuscript. Um, So it was, uh, that was all exhilarating. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life to be able to treat myself to that learning and those experts and then the, the chewy creative challenge of making the science my own. Well, you did a fantastic job, and here's a great example. Hands are sensory SUVs guzzling up massive amounts of tactile data, data so voluminous and crucial to human survival and thriving that it claims a huge share of the brain's sensory processing capacity relative to that claim by other body parts, even the much larger arms and legs. Mm -hmm. That is so fascinating. I never really thought about that. Isn't that that. cool? But our hands, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I love, I love how you write about your mother's hands, Mm -hmm. You're right. My mother's hands used to intrigue me back when I was a child, standing just about eye level with the kitchen counter, seeing even more of them in a day than I probably did of her face. Mm-hmm. And you go on to say, by the way, your writing is so fantastic. So there's Thank a truth you. that even a five-year-old knows more than their impressive construction. It's what hands do that makes them essential. And talk to us about some of the things your mother's hands do. And I want people to read the book, but I just found that so moving. Yeah, I really do. Even now, I was just getting chills. I can, <clears throat> I can picture my hands. I know my mother's hands. I know exactly what they look like. And the funny thing she always says is, oh, Becca, you have such beautiful hands, not at all like my own mine and I say mom my hands are exactly the same as yours (laughs) so one of us is wrong Um, that's right (laughs) but um you know she she used to I remember her peeling oranges and so she would peel an orange for us and first she'd score the outside into maybe sixths and then she'd peel it down and then she would take a paring knife and she would Um, she'd slice it from top to bottom in these little fans and she would just work her way down in a spiral and she just did it all so effortlessly and you know and I'd stand there at an age when you know I can't hold a crayon for more than a second without accidentally breaking it or dropping it or something (laughs) and I know that I can't touch knives because they're sharp and I'm thinking how does she do that 
you know, how does she do that without cutting herself? How does she do that without dropping the orange? Or another one, you know, this is back in the day of rotary phones. And I was absolutely astonished that she knew, you know, which hole to put her finger in. Well, you know, obviously I could count, but you know, how do you figure out the numbers and everything? And she would just whip it around. And I can still remember the sound. It goes zzz. Right. And, you know, her hands were just so they just were so confident and um, and she still will use her hands to talk a lot. And um, I, I, I yeah, it was just uh, it was this constant display. And um, I have very, yeah, very clear recollections of it. I find that so fascinating because I've never heard anyone talk about somebody's hands before. And I I thought that was interesting that you'd had this fond memory of your mother's hands in that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And then you have this horrific accident and then you're exploring hands Mm -hmm. and really taking a deep dive. Yeah, well, and taking them for granted for pretty much every second between noticing (laughs) my mother's hands and, you know, suddenly losing the use of one of them temporarily. I think we all take so much for granted. Yeah, yeah. It's just incredible. And I I love how you write in the book about how, you know, people kind of get stressed out. They're like, oh, gosh, that woman's toilet exploded. Is my toilet going to explode? And I'm sure listeners are like, wait, what? You kind of glossed over that, Lisa. How does it, what are you talking about? Right. Well, I've learned over the years of telling this story that I have to start with, look, we don't know what caused the toilet to explode. We just don't. But, you know, of course, I did a load of Google searching. Of course, you know, there was a lot of hypothesis. And as I describe in the book, you know, it was finally like the Google searching plus the the very confident um, hypothesis of a plumber's son that I met in a party in New York. And I still remember the balcony, the address, like the people hanging out. And we were like putting this together. He's like, yeah, here's what I think happened. Um, But I will save it for the book because it's a little bit long. It was it was something that had to be covered, and um, the important thing is that it wasn't anybody's fault. Everything was up to code. So I think it could have been a very I think it could have been a more difficult psychological recovery if it had been a preventable accident, but it wasn't. It was just a terrible accident. Oh, that's a really mm. interesting. Yeah, point. I mean, we'll never know, but yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, speaking of humor. I love your sense of humor. You said this to your sister, Erica, at the hospital. And this was, I, I pretty, if I remember correctly, you, you weren't there that long. And you write, I'm going to start a foundation, I proclaim, to chase off darker thoughts, to help victims of toilet accidents around the world overcome their humiliation. I'll call it <laughs> the Toilet Emergency Association T. And I think humor is such a gift, especially in difficult times. And I think there's this weird thing in society of like, well, that's not, you should, can't make jokes. You can't laugh. If you don't laugh, you're just going to, completely just cry even more and Mm -hmm. crying by the way is completely acceptable all the feelings are but I thought that was really interesting and wasn't that pretty early on yeah I don't know how long we'd been there at that point but it couldn't have been couldn't been more than a couple hours at most I mean we were we spent a lot of time laughing in the uh, emergency room I mean you kind of had to and I mean, the doctors laughed with me, the cops laughed with me, everybody laughed with me. And, you know, the fact is that the most serious part of, you know, the most serious part of the situation was over. You know, I stopped the bleeding. We got to the hospital. I was alive. I still, there was still a lot I didn't know. I was worried maybe I would need a blood transfusion. Uh, I didn't know whether I would have use of my hand. You know, there was a lot for us to worry about. But remember, by that point, we were just worried that I would have been dead. <laughs> so, Pretty much 
you know, you're already in your second life at that moment. Um, you know, there's also some morphing involved, but there's also the sense that everybody deals with trauma or adversity differently and how we cope with it in the moment, you know, whether it's humor, whether it's tears or both, or, you know, stoicism or, um, raging and all of that, it's cultural, it's biological, it is environmental. So, um, you know, that's one of the things that I was really glad to learn more about and have a deeper appreciation of in, you know, that, all of our experiences of adversity are interestingly, you know, adversity is universal and yet our experience of it is wholly individual. And there are many reasons for that. You know, we're not, uh, you know, our will and our agency and our desires are not the only driver of how we respond. And, you know, my sister and I, as I mentioned in the book, you know, there have been some family crises, you know, we've learned to be capable. Uh, it makes us feel good. We get things done. Um, I, I would also argue everybody needs an advocate in a hospital. And, um, you, you know, we want to have our wits about us to the degree that we can. So whatever those environmental factors were, that's what we could do in that moment. You know, put all those things together and that made us feel good. Cracking some jokes and um, having some laughs. Um, but, you know, wouldn't necessarily happen in all circumstances and with all people. And, you know, if I were coming in and I was, you know, bringing my child to an emergency room, I'm sure I would not be laughing, you know? So oh it's, my gosh. Yeah. um, it's fascinating though, just the many different factors involved in how you respond in a given moment. And I'm glad that we could find the humor because, you know, uh, it's pretty funny yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't kill you an exploded toilet is pretty funny. Yeah, that is true. What wasn't so funny is the amount of how much it took to get your hand Mm -hmm. back Mm -hmm. working. Chapter three, I believe, is called Spaghetti Wrist. Mm -hmm. And we learn a lot about tendons, which is fascinating. And tell us a little bit about that. And and for people who are trying to, like, visualize what this looked like. Right, right. So, well, the diagnosis uh, with spaghetti wrist in the UK, it's called a full house. And there are a variety of actual definitions of spaghetti wrist, but basically it's, you know, an artery plus a nerve plus something like two or more tendons or something like that. In my case, it was eight tendons, an artery and a main nerve. And in my case, it was literally everything that you need to close your hand for the brain to know that you have a hand so that it keeps it alive, um, for you to sense things, for you to manipulate things. So essentially it's every, you know, it's a hand, it's everything that I needed to have a useful hand was severed. And the complexity of repairing that is absolutely extraordinary. So first of all, um, you know, tendons are under some tension, like a, a slightly taut rubber band, so that when you snip them, they retract. And therefore, they disappear from the field of vision in a wound. So the first thing that the surgeons had to do was go in and find both ends, see if they could find both ends of the severed tendons. You know, that's not a given. Or if they needed to explore further, they had to make the decision. For instance, in one case, they couldn't find one of the ends and they decided not to explore for it because that would be making more cuts and more cuts is more scar tissue and scar tissue gums up the very delicate inner workings of the hand. So 
you know, they have to find the ends. The ends have to be in good condition such that you can bring them together. Um, then they have to put in numerous stitches into these tiny structures that are, let's say, uh, as my surgeon described it, two pieces of linguine stacked. And they're putting like six stitches in it or four stitches in it that go in a, an intricate pattern. And that's just the nerve. I mean, that's just the tendons. And then the nerve is essentially a nerve sheath repair that's described in the book. And you've got tissue that my surgeon explained to me, and I loved this as he's like, texture wise, it's like wet toilet paper around overcooked spaghetti. And, you know, and then they've got to put a bunch of stitches in that. And so, you know, the technique involved is fascinating. And as I also describe in the book, you know, how did reconstructive surgery get to the point where you could do this? In a word, you could say war. Yes. And I thought that was a fascinating connection. Yes, absolutely. You write about how you read the book, The Healing Hand. Mm -hmm. And you write, quote, greedily consuming the book, I was struck just how much the life-improving practice of surgery owes to the life-taking practice of war. That's that's a lot to think about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating, and it's been since you know, any, you know, medical records and um, a lot of medical history will go back to the Iliad and the Odyssey and analyze them for, you know, what might have been current practices and things like that. And even today, uh, a lot of the funding for prosthetics and things like that comes from the military. And, um, you know, it's also benefiting civilian populations that are unfortunately falling victim to armed conflict as well. So, it is a very complex relationship. Um, but the, you know, so the surgery was something that, you know, I could benefit from today. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, you know, there's what the surgeons do. And then they always said, they said, hey, this is just the beginning. You know, it's, it's all you, meaning, you know, you doing your occupational therapy, but it's also nature. So much could still have gone wrong um, <clears throat> even after a good surgery you know, the, the scar tissue could be overzealous, um, infection could take hold. Um, you know, there was just so many things that could go wrong. And so the uncertainty of coping with that and, and having the doctors say, never say never, never say always, you know, the surgery went well, that is a good thing. And, you know, you're really motivated and have the time to do your OT. That is a good thing. We just can't make promises. And I really respected that they didn't try to make promises. Um, but that was hard to deal with that uncertainty. And then fortunately, as time went on, you could see the healing was going well. I did not get infected. The movement started happening. Um, but as I describe in the chapter about occupational therapy, wow. And I got to interview, you know, I interviewed my surgeon extensively. I interviewed my occupational therapist extensively. Um, wow, boy, did she have to pull out every trick in the book to, get those tendons loosened up to prevent the scar tissue from taking hold. She's like, there was a lot of scar tissue gumming that up because it's a very small space and there were loads of stitches, lots of surgery in a very small space. So scar tissue was really the, the potential enemy there. You know, at one point I was thinking of going to school for occupational therapy and I ended up getting my master's in public health instead and Mm -hmm. getting into health education and health Mm -hmm. media, which I love. But I've always been fascinated and I really enjoyed reading about your experience. And one of the things that I think really struck me as well was that 
when you go to occupational therapy, there's people who are poor, there's people who are rich, there's people who every mm-hmm. socioeconomic class, mm-hmm. every race, everything. Mm-hmm. And there's this understanding yeah. that you won't get outside yes. of that, right? Like we're all here and we're all want to get better. And I love that you talk about being in the waiting room mm-hmm. and there's a woman who doesn't speak English, mm-hmm. but she she gestures to her, your hand yep. and you know smiling. Yeah, this is and and she gestures to what she's going through. Yeah. And it's, it's this community that mm-hmm. you never would have had. Mm-hmm. And I definitely want you to comment on that. But I wanted, I wanted to just bring up this, too, is that you had a, a person you knew named Scott, who I think you used to work with, and he had had some damage to his mm-hmm. hand. And he said to you, someday you'll know it's true. He pauses. You're lucky this happened to you. Your experience in that waiting room, mm-hmm. it opened you up. And it opened you up in bigger ways that we're going to get to mm-hmm. as well. So I hope I didn't throw too much. I just kind of connected that, Scott, to what... I mm-hmm. thought I saw happening in that waiting room. That's absolutely a connection. It's one of many. So, yeah, when he said that, and I, I, I thank him every time I see him. He's now actually recently moved to London, you know, and and he's just like, uh, yeah, whatever, you know, no problem, no problem. And I'm just like, you have no idea. Well, now he does because there's a book and he's in the book. But um, it was really important to have someone right at that moment, at that time, tell me, there will be good things that you experience because of this. And he wasn't in any way saving, saying there's a silver lining in every trauma. I'm not saying that. That's not what my book means at all. There are some things that are just grueling and awful. And But it was important for someone to tell me that I would experience wonderful things again. And he could say from very good personal experience that I would experience wonderful things and have my mind open up in ways, yes, that I couldn't have any other way. And you were absolutely right that one of those ways was that whole Bellevue Hospital, which if anyone knows, you know, New York City is is a, a renowned trauma center. And it's, um, it's a hospital for everyone. It treats the uninsured. And so it's just a, a, an extremely diverse population of people who are, you know, like me, have traumatic injuries. Um, but unlike me, a lot of them, you know, would have not had professional jobs or they would have very dangerous jobs uh, and things like that. And but we were so unified. And I just I say it in the book. I felt so much more at home there, you know, for those weeks following the accident. And I still have an incredible soft you know, spot in my heart for it because it is all these people you know, it's an institution full of people that are just working so hard to get to the next step. You know, whatever we have, whatever we're doing, whatever happened to us, every single person in there is working so hard to get better. And it's, it's infectious, maybe not the best word, but yes, you know, people's, people's, um, determination and their dignity and their, um, their generosity, they want to encourage you. And I, I, I could only sort of highlight a couple of the opportunities, you know, situations where people did that, but there were so many times where, you know, there I am the new kid in OT (laughs) in the, in the upper extremities occupational therapy room. And somebody who has been through some other horrific thing, you know, is farther along in their recovery. And they look at me and they say, you will do this. And I'm looking at them and thinking, not a chance. Like, God, I hope they're right, but I just can't imagine it. And so it was a very, very inspiring place. It can also be a very sad place. Um, people are going to have different kinds of challenges when they get out. So I was extremely lucky 
because I was only going to be visiting that world of, you know, traumatic injury. And um, it was a temporary disability for me. And, you know, a lot of people will have, you know, return to much more challenging environments. Um, but just the camaraderie and the, the, the desire for everyone around you to have a good day in OT, um, you know, to shake off the frustration, to have a little laugh, um, to, you know, commiserate over the pain, um, you know, compare scars and battle wounds. You know, that's one thing that I found really funny and I still find it to this day. There's this desire and I, you know, somebody must have written a PhD on it somewhere, but the desire to show people your scars and your things and, you know, patience, you're like, oh yeah, look at that. And people would be showing me like, hey, look, they took the skin graft today. Do you want to see where? I'm like, yeah, go on then. (laughs) Whereas like you step outside of those walls and everybody's like, oh my God, don't even say blood, please don't say blood. So yeah, it was definitely having my mind opened up just to... I mean, what we can be to each other in our hardest moments and, you know, being inspired by a lot of people who are long, you know, farther along in the process than I was or encouraging me or et cetera, or the chance to do that for someone that feels very empowering as well to be able to cheer someone along. Well, it's funny because I was going to ask you when you had those not a chance thoughts, when people would say you'll be doing this, you kind of answer the question by saying that that camaraderie and that sense of community and having other people get what you're talking about and also how your family and friends stepped up too. Mm -hmm. And you write in the book about Becca Dubysel and being this little kid, he's like, I'm going to do it all. And your sister, you both had this sense of like, we do it ourselves. And, and then you kind of had to look at self-sufficiency in a new way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and talk to us about that. Yeah. Um, So as I describe it in the book, it's, uh, you'll often hear, you know, someone's strength is also often their weakness. And I think that's a great way to describe, you know, my fierce independence. Um, It's fantastic when it means like, I really love being able to figure out something myself. Um, So for instance, you know, I live alone and I, I like the fact that I have to find the roofer and negotiate and evaluate estimates. And then once I've done that, I've maybe I've made a mistake or, you know, not, but, but then I know a little bit more about how, and then I can do that. Or, you know, I, I like to figure things out. Um, it interests me and it makes me stronger in some ways. Um, I don't want to be protected from a lot of things. Um, but there are limits, and you know what? We all need help. And I think that was the that was the biggest maybe wake up call in a sense was I was just so, you know, I was just so in, incapacitated. I just was, you know, if I wasn't physically, you know, I was temporarily disabled, you know, it was just a right hand. I know people who've broke, broken, broken both wrists and, you know, now they have no hands. That's even worse. Um, but you know, also mentally, I was incapacitated for a while. I was on huge doses of painkillers and, um, you know, there was the trauma to think about and, and it was a muddle. And so I really needed the help and I needed in some cases people to tell me what I needed. Um, and that was, that was challenging and it never quite feels like enough. That's the thing. And I think, you know, ultimately illness and, um, other kinds of adversity are lonely experiences, no matter what you have. Um, no matter who you have to help you. I know that you talked about you'd have these like crying jags. Mm. You would do your morning walk and sit on the bench. I think that's so healthy Mm. because there's a lot to cry about. I don't do well with physical pain. I grew up with a parent. My mom was chronically ill 
had I'm three sorry. botched knee surgeries in the early 70s. I had my sister and I had to take care of her, bring her ice all the time That's and cook and clean and the whole thing. That's a lot. And so I just have this reaction, yep. emotional mm-hmm. trauma reaction to pain. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, you handled it like a champ. I just, but I also was, I think it's good to cry too. Mm. And I was glad you were able to let yourself, especially being that independent, self-sufficient person. You know, I would say, first of all, I'm sorry for all that you went through. You know, those are, again, it's the biopsychosocial environmental model. Everything is connected, you know. So you say I dealt so well with my pain. We have our different factors. It means different things to, to us. Um, in those moments. And, um, you know, there are a lot of different scenarios in which my pain would have felt less tolerable. Um, You know, it's first of all, chronic versus, you know, finite. If everything went well, my pain was going to be, it was going to come to an end. That's a very different understanding to have when you're coping with pain in the moment than I don't know when this is going to happen next. It's going to happen again. So I would say, you know, um, I, I ain't a doctor, but please don't judge yourself for your pain response. And please don't, please don't admire me for mine. No, but seriously, you know, there's like, there's a, there's a social judgment right. there that we make about, that. you know, we're supposed to be stoic. And um, yeah, so um, fortunately my pain was not something that was life-changing. Good. How long did it last? If it's okay the to pain? ask. Yeah. Um, I would say, so I mentioned, I mean, I, I measure the intense pain by how long I was on the Vicodin and I was really worried about becoming addicted to Vicodin. This is before the opioid crisis. And, and I was on high doses and it still wasn't, you know, obliterating the pain. Um, but my surgeon who is excellent was concerned about, he didn't want to give me any more. He's just like, doesn't seem safe. Well, he, he wouldn't have said it exactly that way, but, um, so I would say a good 10 weeks, um, good 10 weeks. I was never going to miss a dose. And I was, you know, I was on it round the clock. And if I didn't take a bunch of sleep meds at bedtime, I would be up you know, every few hours as the doses um, spent themselves. But I think after about 10 weeks, certainly at 12 weeks, I was still on a little bit. I was still on it at night when I went back to work. Um, but I would say so, you know, but by that point, it was ebbing to the point where I wasn't always just like, oh, my God, when can I take the next dose? And I just naturally started forgetting oh, that's good. doses, which was a relief to me. I, you know, I would have found a way to titrate myself off one way or the other. Um, but I just started forgetting doses and that's how I knew that I didn't need as much. I do still have some pain sometimes, um, depends on a lot of different things, but it is, um, it's not, it's not life changing. It doesn't get in the way of anything. It's not intrusive or frightening to me. So um, I am very lucky in that respect. It's, it's not a thing in my life. I do occasionally notice that I have it. And in a weird way, I <laughs> someone's going to hate me for saying this kind of like it. Cause I'm like, yeah, it's not, that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm lucky to have this little puppy. I'm lucky to be here. And it's just, you know, it's just whimpering every once in a while. Not bad. Yes. It could have been so much worse. Yeah. That's a really good point. 
You know, I also love how you talk about your love of music in the book mm-hmm. and that you played violin as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And it was really, it was really a big part of your teenage years. Mm-hmm. And so you asked about the violin and didn't Dr. Vargas, that's your surgeon, didn't you think you were joking or one of the doctors you were talking like, to? They all thought so I was joking. Like, no, I'm serious. I, I'd like to play the violin. Yeah, they, they all thought I was joking. They all thought I was joking. You know, it's like, I, I just remember it was like first in, you know, and, and the surgeons weren't as, con, you know, concerned about the recreational stuff. I mean, I'm not going to speak for them, but, you know, the it's more the occupational therapists that, that get into your whole lifestyle. You know, how, how much of your hand do you need to be able to live a full life as you, you know, defined it? Um, but, you know, at some point in the ER or at some point when I was seeing the doctors early on in the hospital, I was saying, you know, well, okay, that's good. I might be able to do this again. What about this? What about this? What about this? And, you know, I get to violin and, you know, I used to play a little piano as well. Nothing near what I did with violin too, but piano and violin, they're like, did you play before? And I'm like, yeah. And then by the time the second or the third time, you know, someone is saying, did you play before? I'm like, you guys have never seen a musician before? Like, literally, you treat hundreds and hundreds of people a year. Have you never found another musician? <laughs> Turns out there are lots of them, actually, and there are occupational therapists. We're not therapists. all joking. Yeah, yeah, and there are a lot of occupational therapists who um, specialize in getting them back to their craft. So thank goodness for that. I love how you started playing the Scottish fiddle. How's that been? Are you still doing that? I'm still doing that. I had my last lesson for the summer, you know, because my teacher is also a school teacher. And so she takes the summers off and composes and tours. But it has just been a delight. I love it. It has given me so much more than I even thought. You know, I've for 30 years, my fiddle was under my violin was under the bed. And, you know, I felt this sense of, you know, love and bereavement and guilt. And, you know, I should really get back to that. I'd like to get back to that. But I just couldn't figure out the music to get me back because I used to practice so much that, you know, it it takes three hours a day or five hours a day or eight hours a day to, you know, play at the level that I was playing at. And obviously that wasn't going to happen again. And so every time I picked up my violin and, you know, in subsequent years, I hated it because I was terrible at it. And um, so we just had this, you know, it was just this unresolved sort of um, tiff uh, between me and my violin. And so when I decided to play Scottish fiddle, the main reason was like, because I've never done it before, so I won't mind being really bad at it. And it's just been so much fun. You know, it's traditional music, it's folk music, it's meant to entertain yourself and others. So it's not about virtuosity. It's not about perfection. It's about, you know, a good pulse and being jolly and embellishing. And um, the tunes have really funny names. I just learned something called the water boiling machine. Another favorite (laughs) tune is called Turkey Soup. Um, You know, it's just like there's some sort of a tradition of naming it, you know, just the thing that was you know, on your mind that day, or, you know, you'll write a tribute to a person and it'll just be their name. You know, it'll be Joe Schmo <laughs> or, you know, Joe Schmo's Strathspey or yeah. something. Um, so it's, it's wonderful to be able to rediscover it and to be a student again. And, uh, yeah. Oh, I love that. You know, I want to go back to talking about just how you've changed as a person. I mean, you were so compassionate the way you were talking about that my experience is my experience and the way I look at pain because of this fear of being like my mom and having, you know, this chronic pain Mm -hmm. or reacting differently. How do you look at other people's hardships overall? I mean, it seems clear just from talking to you that you have a wonderful sense of empathy, but more than that, you have that sense of understanding Mm -hmm. because of your trauma. 
Like it informs you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely informs me. And, you know, I think if I had to say that there was one really big thing I got out of the science studying that I did, it really was that biopsychosocial environmental model. And that gave me a huge appreciation also for the factors that influenced the way I saw things. And so, you know, the fact that there was some emotional instability in my household growing up and, you know, that gave me certain kinds of fears and certain kinds of, um, you know, beliefs about the way life was and things are and should be. And um, so I think that the accident was maybe not my first, you know, turning point or it wasn't that first um you'll edit all of this space out <laughs> it wasn't the yeah. first experience that that gave me pause and and helped me connect some dots but it was certainly the biggest the one that I got you know it brought my life to a screeching halt briefly and and really necessitated my examining all of that. And then the fact that I chose to study the science around it gave me such a layered and rich appreciation for the way, you know, our bodies and minds work in these situations. So I think that was the big missing piece. You know, I'd certainly been exposed to you know, spiritual thought and philosophical thought about principles and values and empathy and compassion and, um, and kindness. And I knew all of that, but it was still very much, you know, very much from the perspective of, which I still think is a little bit, you know, too much the current in our culture, which this is all a choice, you know, how, how we behave in every moment is a choice. And we do have choices, but how we view a situation and the tools that we have to bring to it are the product of many things. So that is not to, you know, abdicate all responsibility, you know, for our choices. But I think the accident is what really helped me see, you know, the, the full spectrum of influences or actually as many as can be seen. And that made me just a heck of a lot more empathetic toward myself and toward others also, because I just realized, you know, sometimes we're just going to get it wrong or sometimes we have to experience it before we have any idea what to do. And, you know, for someone who previous to that, um, you know, had always wanted to do things, you know, the best way, the right way, if there, you know, if there's a bonus question on the test, I want to get that one right too. And, I just got a much, I got an appreciation for how much messier life is because just, you know, all of my well-laid plans, you know, it did, the irony is it didn't really change my life in the outer structure, but I just saw how much it could. I was like, wow, we're, we are really not in control here. And, um, so a lot of empathy for others situations. And that doesn't mean, by the way, you know, like you, you can't always, well, you can never see my inner dialogue or my inner monologue. So yeah, there are times when, you know, I'm, I'm comparing myself and thinking I should care less about that. I should care more about that. I, you know, or, you know, right. Still, I, I will be working on myself to become a better person till the day I die. But, um, I'm glad that I could learn a lot from this experience. And I think it's made me more helpful to a lot of people too, which gives me a lot of satisfaction because a lot of people have, you know, used their life experiences to help me. So it's nice to, you know, feel, feel like I'm able to pay it forward a little bit. Oh, you're lovely. 
I know I've kept you a long time, but I definitely would love for you to share. If you have any advice for anyone who has a loved one that just had a physical trauma or, you know, or someone themselves are listening or with some advice. Yeah. I I really appreciate you asked that question. A lot of people ask me, what can the traumatized person do for themselves? And of course they're, you know, we can always be trying to help ourselves, but I feel that when you have been through a traumatic event or just, you know, very difficult to manage adversity, it's like life is expecting the most of you when you have the least to give. So I really welcome the question of what can we do for the people in our lives who are going through something. One of the things that I think is just the most important um, based on what worked with me and, you know, as I've volunteered and worked with other people in, in similar situations is just learning how to listen without needing to solve, without being horrified, um, I think that's probably the biggest, you know, the biggest thing that you can do is to learn how to look someone in the eye and just, um, you know, people talk about witnessing. It's just really important. And I can't even articulate all of the ways that it helps. But knowing that you can, you know, share your stuff, whether you need to fall apart and cry, whether you need to describe something, whether you need to show them something, to know that there are people there who will look you in the eye and just let you do that and not freak out, make it about themselves, uh, try to solve it when there's no way they can solve it. Um, That's really valuable. And, you know, we can't all do that for everybody all the time. You know, we're all going to have our own baggage that we bring to it. So maybe, you know, maybe you can, you can listen to this, but not to that, whatever, but recognizing, but just learning how to listen, I think is a really big thing. Um, Secondly, I would just say, oh my gosh, practical help. That is massive. You know, there's just, and particularly in America, any kind of health event triggers uh, paperwork, masses of paperwork. Um, If you, well, and that's if you have health insurance um, and, you know, or you need to apply for leave from a job. So, you know, there are all of these, you know, terrible, terrible, awful things. Or, you know, like two weeks after I get out of the hospital, I get a bill for the ambulance, you know, and you're like, seriously? Um, and so, you know, and then also you have um, all these doctor's appointments that have to be scheduled and then you have to get to the, you know, doctor's appointments. So, and then, you know, you have to eat somehow and maybe you can't prepare your meals. Someone has to take out the garbage. Someone has to wash the clothes. And, you know, we focus on the medical care part of it. And that's really important. That is such a small part of the whole difficulty of, a a medical event or a trauma, you know, the rest of your life managing. And so if a loved one or a friend or a neighbor or a stranger, if, you know, can spot that opportunity of where can I alleviate any of the administrative friction? Um, And, you know, people who talk about how, how can you support someone who's been recently bereaved? You know, people don't know what to say, whatever. Um, They say like, you know, don't ask what you can do, just do it. I would say that's probably a pretty good rule of thumb as well. Um, you know, I had a neighbor who knocked on my door and said, you know, held up a a Ziploc bag full of these like green cubes. And she said, they're frozen pesto cubes. And I tested them out and you can make them with one hand, you know, and I was so excited, you know, to have like, you know, like now I can home cook a home meal with, you know, one hand because my neighbor tested this out. Um, other people were opening up peanut butter jars and slipping notes under my door saying, 
you know, I've never met you, but if I can, you know, I heard what happened. I'm so sorry. I'm thinking of you. If you need anything, I'm in 6D, please ask. And you know what? I knocked on a bunch of those doors because I wanted to spread the need around, you know? So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to offer. Don't be afraid to just do it. Um, And don't think you have to solve the whole problem because guess what? Nobody can, you know? And I think that's the other thing is I know I myself probably at times have held back just sort of feeling maybe some sort of weird guilt or shame that I can't solve the whole problem. Like, you know, oh no, I can only go over and help them for an evening. You know, that's nothing. They need help for three months. Help them for an evening. Take, take the load off the other person who was going to help them for the evening, you know? And if you live with a partner or a roommate or something like that, you know, like they can't take care of you all the time either. So, you know, relieve those people. Um, I don't mean I'm speaking from the part of the person now Uh, you'll edit this and make it clearer um yeah we can't solve the whole problem don't worry about that do what you can when you can and then if you can do something else later do that too yeah you know last summer I had to have foot surgery and I felt bad because my husband's working full-time and taking care of me and I asked my best friend I was like would you could you make dinner for my husband and daughter like would you mind yeah (laughs) she's like no not at all and she brought this huge thing of red rice and beans that lasted like four days you know even if you have a partner who goes above and beyond like I was very I'm very lucky Mm -hmm. he's fabulous don't be afraid to ask right because people want to help. Yeah, that is exactly right. People do want to help. And um, you brought up another good point. So don't assume that somebody has everything they need either. You know, um, you know, we know that the, the pressure, I think COVID taught a lot of people the pressure that is put on, you know, say parents who were trying to, uh, you know, hold down jobs and also homeschool and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, I... Uh, it's a little bit of my hobby horse, but I would like our society to think about, you know, social safety net much more broadly than, all right, if you're married, you score, that's great. They're everything. They're all that you need. They never need any help. But also that if you're single, well, no, that's, you know, it's all on you because, well, you didn't line up your partner, you know, all that stuff, you know, nobody can, nobody can get everything they need from one person. And so, you know, if we have that network of people who, you know, will just give what they can when they can, um, I think that's what everybody needs anyway. So yeah, don't assume everybody has it all together. You know, be aggressively kind, show up with a casserole or say, you know, what, what chores I'm, I'm, I want to come over Saturday afternoon and do chores, make a list of chores for me and say, yes. Yeah. I can see you and I, your hands look great. (laughs) How, woohoo. I mean, Mm-hmm. That's I want people to read the book, but if you don't mind just giving us a little bit of how your hands working now, like I'm watching you and you're talking with it, yeah. and it, I'm like trying to see closer. Yeah, <laughs> it looks fabulous. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a good hand. It served me well. Um, right. So if you saw my hand, it's a it looks perfectly typical. Um, so. I'm not, I'm not saying normal because what's a normal hand and our hands change over our, the course of our life. Um, but this hand, you know, my, my repaired hand looks exactly like my other hand, but you would notice a small, uh, very faint scar. 
on the inside of my right wrist. Um, if you paid close attention and I bent my wrist down, you would see um, some wrinkling of the skin that's a little, you know, that's not, uh, not typical. And that's where scar tissue has stuck the surface of the wrist to the, the repaired tendons. Um, what's most different about this hand, and it is a very different hand than my, you know, my left hand, which I'll call my original hand, it feels really different. So the, the severed nerve grew back, but it grew back funky. So it has, you know, a nerve is a bundle of really bundle of axons and, um, you know, not all of them grew back, not all of them reached the proper destination. Uh, those that reached any destination at all are giving sort of garbagey interpretations of what they're reading. So, um, so I feel things very differently and, you know, the brain has had to translate this garbagey information. Um, I feel like I'm belittling my, my hardworking hand. I won't say garbaging. Let's just say it speaks a different, you know, the nerve speaks a different language than it used to. <laughs> um, so I have what's called protective sensibility, which means like just enough, uh, sensation in that hand or along the, the median nerve distribution, which is most of the hand, just enough sensation to keep it out of trouble, but not enough to keep it out of all trouble, as I explain. And there are some slightly painful but quite amusing situations that I get into because the hand doesn't always know where it is or what it's feeling. Um, so yeah, I you know one of the interesting quirks is that um, I have what's called poor localization of stimuli. So if you closed your eyes and you stuck your hand with a pen, you would know exactly where the pen was contacting your hand. I don't know that on the right-hand side because my nerves don't, you know, they're, they're not as good as they used to be. And so I'll actually feel it in like six different places. Fine if it's the tip of a pen. Um, you know, if I cut myself, that stinks. I feel that in a lot of places, uh, you know. So it's a really interesting plant, um, really interesting hand, and it kind of amuses me. It's, it's really weird. It's funny. Now, if you pet a... I'm, I'm dog obsessed. So oh, if you pet a dog, do you feel... Well, in fact... I talk about dog tummy in the book, but yes, that's one of the examples I use of, you know, like soft dog tummy. No, it feels like sandpaper. Yeah. So, um, that's probably the biggest loss really is that, um, it generally my hand feels like it's asleep. So there's this continual slight tingle buzz to it, you know, this white noise. And, uh, I can't feel, I have no, um, fine discrimination. I can't distinguish between textures really. You know, if you gave me, I'm feeling the wood of the desk in front of me right now. Um, even that something smooth feels bumpy. If you gave me something really bumpy, then it would feel bumpier than the smooth thing, but they're all, they're all just a range of sandpaper and gravel is basically all of the sensation I get in this hand. I do have the movement, and um, although I have really poor fine dexterity, so I can do a lot of things with my hands, but like next time you open a door with keys, just try to pay attention to how many little micro movements your hand does to flip around and find the right key yeah. and to like jiggle it in the lock and know when the lock is giving and to turn and give just the right force. 
I do not have that. I have to do it with my left hand. And my left hand isn't great at it either because it hasn't have a lifetime of practice, but it's still better than the right hand. Um, I also, you know, fastening necklaces is tough. Um, if you want to laugh, just throw some change on the floor and watch me try to like pick up pennies. That is like the hardest. Fortunately, I don't need to do that much, you know, cashless society. But it's just like trying to pick that up. Like, you know, um, so none of these are life-changing issues, but there are some deficits. But I think that's another interesting thing I learned in, in researching and writing the book is, you know, disability is not an inherent characteristic of the body. It is when a body interacts with the built environment and can't do something because of the way the environment is built. So doesn't mean my hand is disabled that I can't pick up the pennies, but I can't do, you know, it's not, my hand is not optimized to do that particular task. And that task is not designed for my, my hand. Um, but fortunately I am not, uh, you know, this hand is quite able to interact with everything that I regularly need to do. I can type, I can open doorknobs, I can cook, I can, you know, handle a knife safely when I'm preparing a meal. Uh, and I can play fiddle as long as I hold the bow differently and don't mind dropping it occasionally. Rebecca, this has been so fantastic. Again, the book, everyone's got to get this book, Beautiful Trauma, An Explosion, An Obsession, and a New Lease on Life. Tell us all the ways we can find you in your fantastic book. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a really, really fun interview. You asked like questions about stuff that I just loved thinking about. So let me get that out oh, of the way. Yay. This was a joy. Um, you, I, eventually I will have a website, but right now you can find me on Twitter at Reb Fogg, um, little bit on Insta. I'm also on LinkedIn and that's where a lot of my professional life was before the book as well. So, um, you can always try to message me there or on Twitter and, um, eventually there'll be a website and you can buy the book wherever books are sold. Yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. People want to check me out on uh, social media at Lisa Davis MPH. See a lot of pictures of my good boys. And also be sure to check out Dog Eared while you're here. Keep coming back to Health Power, rate, review, subscribe, and get Rebecca Fogg's book. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.